It is perfectly clear to anyone around this investigation on whom the focus of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department and the other investigators to the extent that tunnel vision, that investigative bias bled over. It's perfectly clear on whom the focus of this investigation is. With USA Today Network Wisconsin, I'm Shane Nyman. And I'm Doug Schneider. This is Making a Mania, the Stephen Avery saga and why we're obsessed. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. By now, we've all seen the Netflix series. We know the ins and outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Redditor, or maybe you stopped reading about it when you finished episode 10. Whatever the case, we all know the story. We're not here to rehash that. With the arrival of the second season, what we are here to do is pull back on all this, the series, the case, and the surrounding hoopla, to see what we can learn. There's so much interest because there are so many layers. We want to peel back those layers and examine them like nobody else has done. He calls himself a quiet Wisconsin defense lawyer, but Dean Strang is anything but. He'd already published a book on crime and justice by the time Making a Murderer first aired, but the documentary elevated him to the international stage. Soon, it seemed, everyone was talking about Dean Strang. The legal community raved that he was a throwback to what attorneys should be, while fashion fans swooned over his ability to have turned wearing basic, conservative business clothing, augmented by an occasional pair of argyle socks, into an art form. People on Tumblr even gave it a name, Strangcore. The headline of a 2016 magazine profile gushed that everybody loves Dean, and pointed out how people in LaGuardia Airport recognized him, but not the head of the International Monetary Fund. That person was someone Forbes had recently named the 23rd most powerful person in the world. In talking to Strang, it's quickly evident that he won't be your typical interview. His answers are thoughtful, nuanced, and rarely offered in terms of absolutes. Pauses abound as he searches for just the right word. For a reporter who frequently deals with subjects who lock in on an answer and stop listening before the question is even finished, this was refreshing. But don't assume that Strang lacks strong opinions. He has clear ideas about interrogations, the relationship between police and the communities they serve, and about criminal justice in general. Something that stood out right away. Though the Avery case was divisive for much of the public, you either felt that multiple searches of the same trailer and a quick zeroing in on a lone subject helped convict the wrong guy, or you supported anything that, quote, got the guilty party, end quote, and convicted him, Strang found nuance and opportunities for change. He says he found that people on both sides of the political spectrum would welcome some changes in the justice system. My own, again, anecdotal experience has been that no matter how people describe their politics, um, they are coming with concerns about the relationship between the individual and the police in a free society. They just have concerns about that. Um, and um, more than a few police officers and former police officers have said to me, you know, I was really disturbed by what I saw, or I want you to know that that's not how we do things, you know, in my department. We'd asked Strang his thoughts about a St. Norbert College opinion poll that found a strong correlation between how people identified politically and how they viewed the Avery case as told through making a murderer. 
if you viewed yourself as conservative, you were more likely to believe that justice had been done. If you said you were liberal, you had concerns about how police and prosecutors reached the conclusions they had. You also had concerns about whether the defendant's legal rights had been respected. He also talked about audience reaction. Strang indicates that his speaking audiences tend to lean to the liberal side. Why come here a guy who defended a convicted murderer, especially if you have no concerns about how he got to the arrest, the allegations, and the verdict, right? But he said he found folks on both ends of the political spectrum have open minds about some criminal justice issues. These people have decided to come hear me and then sought me out to talk with me. Um, so the, the likelihood that somebody who thoroughly disagrees with my point of view or doesn't like the role of criminal defense lawyers in the system or is strongly supportive of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department or the Calumet County Sheriff's Department, the likelihood that those people would come hear me or then seek me out to have a, a personal conversation with me is low, right? I mean, I've, I've had some, but I've had very few hostile encounters or disagreeable encounters. Um, so that, I think that needs to be carried in mind. But, um, you know, I think if you look across the political spectrum um, in the United States, as recently as the presidential primary season in 2016, you really did see broad bipartisan support for reexamining um, incarceration trends, sentencing practices, um, and, you know, whether some conduct ought to be treated as criminal. I think there's broad bipartisan support for reexamining, for example, marijuana laws. Um, and so I don't think this necessarily breaks down cleanly. Um, but I don't have, you know, I only have my own personal experience and perspective on it. It is something that I've thought a lot about with Making a Murderer is how different political leanings point to whose side you're on. I think traditionally conservative people are often seen as pro-police, pro-law enforcement. So following that line, you would be more likely to think that Avery was guilty and that justice was done. On the other hand, if you look at the social aspect of it, you have the Avery family, which is rural, living in the country in Wisconsin, that would tend to have more conservative leanings, so you'd be more pro the family and think that he got a raw deal. The thing that jumped out at me about this was the reaction, social media comments, threads, man-on-the-street interviews where a number of people believe that the end justifies the means. We convicted this guy. We believe he's guilty. So if corners were cut or prosecutors overstepped their bounds, that was okay because the result was something that those people wanted. It, it raised questions about how some people value some of the, the traditional tenets of our justice system. Strang's statement about things people want changed in the system, sentencing, how people are incarcerated, reforming drug laws raises the inevitable question. 
what would he change first? It's a topic where Strang leaves little room for any gray. At or near the top of my list would be hastening the migration of American law enforcement away from confrontational interview techniques like the Reed Method. Um, the rest of the English-speaking world either has left the Reed Method and similar confrontational techniques or is in the progress rapidly of leaving it. That process has only begun in the United States. Um, so, for example, Wicklander Zulowski, which is, the I think, the second largest trainer of um, police and interview techniques, now is... Uh, has abandoned teaching read and other confrontational techniques and is teaching more effective non-confrontational approaches. Um, I, I, I really would like to see the pace of American progress towards more effective, less confrontational law enforcement tech interview techniques increase. Um, Fundamentally, at bottom, a confrontational technique like Reed and the Reed Method um, is is an effort at seeking incrimination. It is not fundamentally an effort at seeking truth. When truth and incrimination happen to align, that's a happy uh, coincidence mm -hmm. uh, for those using Reed. But fundamentally, at core, a confrontational technique presumes guilt, the officer employing the technique has decided that the person in custody probably is guilty, and the technique seeks incrimination, not necessarily truth. Um, that can change. It, it's long overdue for change, in my view, since these confrontational techniques rest on the behavioral psychology of the 1950s and 1940s, much of which was wrong and all of which has been improved on in terms of accuracy and reliability and fact-finding through non-confrontational interview techniques. So I would put that at or maybe, you know, at least near, very near the top of my list. Mm -hmm. If you'll remember our interview with Ken Kratz, interrogation, specifically the interrogation of Brendan Dassey, was the area where things got maybe a little tense. The Dassey interrogation seems to me like a defenseless teenager was thrown to the wolves in the form of two veteran detectives with no defense lawyer present. As a believer in civil rights, that seemed to me like an overreach by the cops. Kratz defends it with a legal argument. Dassey offered indications that he knew how Teresa Halbach was killed and indicate that he had seen or participated in the killing whereupon the investigators pursued a lead that led to Dassey's eventual arrest. But in the process, they focused on the kid as a suspect, first by asking him what he saw, then soon offering suggested answers, essentially leading him to say what they had already concluded. Strang says that the interview should have involved open-ended questions designed to determine what Dassey knew or saw, especially when some of his answers indicated that he might not have knowledge of the crime. In other words, the detectives should have been trying to cast as wide a net as possible for suspects. Another topic we asked Strang about is something that's come up when I've covered murder cases that require weeks of trial. It's the topic of regret afterward. 
A prosecutor I know lamented showing a jury autopsy photos. A defense lawyer, too, said he wished he hadn't made the decision to not let his client testify. Ken Kratz, in our almost two hours with him, spoke of his deep regret about the narcissistic press conference in which he announced criminal charges and spoke of the crime in lurid detail that many viewed as prejudicial for potential jurors. We didn't get anywhere near two hours with Strang. He was in the middle of working on a book, and we caught him right before he hopped on a plane to one of his numerous public speaking engagements. But he did take a moment to talk about whether he regrets anything about how he handled Avery's defense. You know, I've had lots of time and reason to second-guess myself um, and to reflect on, on the fact that when you're watching yourself at work 10 years ago, um, you are very tempted to say that I've learned something in the last 10 years. And if, if I could do it over, I would, I would be better or I, or I would approach things in a subtly different way. Um, and that of course is sort of a, a folly of a kind because, um, uh, we can't go back and, you know, be the person we were 10 years ago and we can't make that 10-year younger version of ourselves who we are today. Uh, we're all works in progress. We all are works in progress. And it's not that we change in any fundamental way once, once we're well into adulthood, but there are subtle ways in which all of us are changing all the time. And, um, you know, and it, it's, this has given me reason to reflect uh, on that sometimes quite uncomfortably. Um, and I think beyond that, uh, the, the experience has reinforced in me a belief that humility about what we can accomplish, um, what, what we can be certain about and what we can't be certain about in the criminal justice system is, is very important and underappreciated. And that in the end, um, our real focus, uh, no matter what our role is in the criminal justice system, should be on accuracy and reliability of of outcomes, and and being humble about you know what what we can insist is beyond question or doubt um, when we're dealing with victims or the accused or family members or the public generally. Basically, he's, he's saying he's a don't-look-back, no-regrets kind of guy. Um, if, if you did your best to your ability in the, the time and place where you tried a case, that's all you can ask for. Uh, he also makes the point that we're quote, works in progress throughout our lives. So, of course, 10 years later, chances are that he's a better attorney and might have handled the case at least slightly differently, if not significantly differently. But he seems to be saying that that he's not going to lose any sleep over worrying about that. I was before a quiet Wisconsin criminal defense lawyer, and I have been and still am a quiet Wisconsin criminal defense lawyer. 
I find there to be something very human and respectable about the way he looks back at what was probably the most significant moment of his career. Um, it's, it's important to remember that this thing that he's now known throughout the world for was a professional loss. He failed and he looks back with no regrets. He knows he, he tried his best. Um, and I find that sort of honorable. And I think it's easy to look at his fashion sense or the way he carries himself and people kind of crack jokes about that. But I think there is a real decency to him that has contributed to his folk hero status. Was it a loss, though? I'm, I'm not sure it was. I... I, I think he mounted a vigorous defense. His client may well have been guilty. It's really not, I mean, yes, the public, public wants to keep score and you either, you either win or lose with a verdict in, in some people's minds, but Strang has also been very clear uh, that this has helped bring issues about the criminal justice system into the American and in some cases the world's consciousness and now we're having discussions about things like whether it's fair to have a low IQ 16 year old questioned without an attorney or a parent present and whether you should just charge ahead if an overzealous prosecutor has basically convicted a suspect and possibly tainted your entire jury pool and Strang says in in his interview with us you know hey it's given me a platform in 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 uh in essence a bully pulpit to be having this discussion with people around the world about hey we can make the justice system better and that will benefit pretty much everybody. I think we can agree that, that season two is not going to be like season one. It, it certainly won't move the buzz needle as significantly. That said, there are a whole bunch of reasons I, I think that season two can, can succeed. Number one, you've got people with, with a lot invested in terms of time, in terms of stuff they're saying and doing in the internet and you know people have identities constructed around this show on 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 reddit and places like that number two you think about this and and you know yes it's it's not going to be as is compelling in terms of the backstory but think about american politics every four years we have the same arguments just with the with the names changed and People who've who've dug into their viewpoints and their positions will will just dig in deeper. They people love having the debate, love having the argument. It'll be a chance to talk about whether the end justifies the means in terms of criminal investigations and prosecutions. It'll be a chance to uh, dust off the do we need to reform the justice system argument. There's a lot of opportunity here. There's also nothing that says that 
two very talented filmmakers working for a, a very smart company have to do exactly the same thing. I think there are a lot of opportunities for backstories, untold stories to be told. Yes, the specifics about uh, Stephen Avery's and Brendan Dassey's situations haven't changed, but there's the question of the the human humanity, their families. You know, will the Averys uh, live long enough to to see their son's case reach a resolution, or will they die with with Stephen in prison? Things like that. The comparison to politics is interesting because. Um, what making a murderer doesn't have going for it is it can't overhaul the cast like American politics does every four to eight years. But there is one new character that we know is coming in, um, someone who works a Twitter feed and makes bold claims and bold statements. Does her last name begin with a Z? <laughs> yeah. And that is Kathleen Zellner, who um, figures to be a big part of season two and one of the few potentially new quote-unquote characters in the mix. Um, and I also like what you said about the two filmmakers um, being very talented, and that's going to be really on display this time around because uh, with season one and all of the plot that they had to churn through, it was like 30 years, two crimes, three trials. Uh, this time around they have four years of filings of papers and legal proceedings and that's about it so if they can come up with 10 episodes this time around that are even half as engaging as the first 10 then that might even be a bigger accomplishment than what they did the first time around you're hitting on a on a big point without really saying it and that's that's human drama and where is it going to come from in this season i i think it's going to depend a lot on the filmmakers' access. Uh, I think we agree that they they will have had more access to Kathleen Zellner than probably anyone else, and that could be an interesting story. Um, how much did they have to the families? That that's going to be interesting. I can see where uh, some people who made appearances in in season one might decide, hey, I. I don't like the way I was portrayed, or uh, perhaps I, I want to be on camera more. That's going to be interesting to see that play out. Whatever is coming in Making a Murderer Part 2, we're going to be watching, and so are you. Stay subscribed to the Making a Mania feed, and we'll keep this discussion moving forward in the weeks ahead. Making a Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen and Jim Rosendick edited the podcast. Audio is from our archive coverage of the Stephen Avery trial. To learn more about the podcast, Making a Murderer, or the cases of Stephen Avery and Brandon Dassey, visit postcrescent.com, where our journalists have been writing and reporting on these topics for years. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes.